Commons people this week. Boris Johnson under pressure over trade and investment from China. China thinks this is a matter of their national security and essential to their sovereignty. If Italy, if Brussels, if the United States, if other countries agree and other entities agree, why don't you? And what now for Keir Starmer and Labour after their Batley boost? Will members opposite forgive me if I just turn round um, to look at the new member for Batley and Fenner? She sits there on these benches beneath the flat to Joe Cox, her sister. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons, HuffPost politics news editor, and I'm joined by Paul Wall. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ned. Nice to see you again. And our guest this week is Labour Shadow International Trade Secretary, Emily Thornbury. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hi. All right. Thanks. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, the day after um, England beat Denmark to make it through to the finals of the Euros. Paul, I know you're a big football fan. How are you feeling this morning or this afternoon, in fact? Just relieved and drained, I think, like everyone else. Um, just kind of, I'm still thinking it's a bit of a dream, put it that way. <laughs> I'm sure Emily's constituents feel the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was up very late last night. There was an awful lot of kind of driving around and honking and um, all of that going on. It was, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I think um, it's been such a long time. I mean, I remember the uh, the Danish uh, goalkeeper was asked, wasn't he, you know, are you going to stop football coming home? And he just said, well, has it ever been home? And of course, we've never won the European Championship. So it's really amazing. It's uh, something else, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um... We'll be returning to that topic at the end for the quiz. Um, and I think like a, a, sh- a sharp turn away from that, something a bit more serious. Um, talk about trade, Emily, which is your brief. Um, and let's start with China. Um, Boris Johnson was at the Commons Liaison Committee yesterday being grilled by MPs. And yeah. here's a clip of Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman and let's say China sceptic uh, Tom Tugendhat taking the PM to task over the purchase of the UK's producer of semiconductors by a Chinese-owned manufacturer. Prime Minister, if I may, there is a difference between investment, which is looking for a normal return, to the purchase of technology. And what we're seeing here from Nexperia, which, as you know, is a company that is mostly owned, actually, by a Chinese state-backed firm, we're seeing a Chinese state-backed entity buying a semiconductor manufacturer at a time of global shortage when Beijing is already looking for uh, to stockpile semiconductors. Now, if China thinks this is a matter of their national security and essential to their sovereignty, if Italy, if Brussels, if the United States, if other countries agree and other entities agree, why don't you? I, I, I think semiconductors are of huge importance to this country. And one of the things that uh, I, I wanted to look at immediately as I became Prime Minister uh, was whether or not we could become more uh, self-reliant. And it, it, I'm told it costs about £9 billion for us to build a, a proper semiconductor factory. It's a, it's a lot of money, uh, particularly during a pandemic. We're, you know, we're, thinking about, we're thinking about what to do. There is this company, uh, they make a lot of semiconductors in Ireland, as you know. Uh, but there is this company in, in Newport. We have to judge uh, whether uh, the stuff that they are making is uh, of you know, real uh, intellectual property uh, value and interest to, to, to China, whether the real security uh, implications. I've asked the national uh, security advisor. He told the committee he doesn't want anti-China spirit to lead the UK to, quote, pitchfork away from every Chinese investment. Um, Emily, Labour has kind of suggested the UK could potentially boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in China over human rights. Do you think the government and the Prime Minister is taking too sort of line on Beijing when it comes to engagement and trade? 
Well, I think the first thing is that they've just never been consistent. Um, I think that it's absolutely right that we don't allow Chinese investment into essential infrastructure, but it's kind of already started to happen. Um, and uh, sorry, I had a cat walking in front of me. Beautiful. I mean, the, the point is, is that, uh, is that there, we have to be really careful about what we agree to and what we don't agree to. And, uh, and this is essential infrastructure. And I think that what the, what the prime minister was asked about was, was again about essential infrastructure. I don't, th I don't think that it's a good idea for there to be foreign investment in the, in, 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 uh, in industries such as that. Um, and I think that also, you know, we've seen in the past the, you know, different versions of this conservative government. So under Cameron and Osborne, you know, they were going, they were trolling off to China and being praised by the Chinese press as being, you know, isn't it great to have these have these overseas leaders coming to China and them not criticizing us for our human rights record? And the same when Theresa May went over, and now we have a different. Well, sometimes. <laughs> Not always sometimes a different attitude to China we should just be consistent and we should just be straightforward and just say you know we want to be able to work with China but frankly there are things that we disagree with and just always be clear about it and to, and for the Chinese to be you know to suddenly be criticized about the Uyghurs for example is something that you know they'd be thinking to themselves well hang on a minute they haven't been criticizing us on that before or you know they've told us that they don't have a problem with us investing in our nuclear power stations and yet now they're saying that they don't want us to invest in in other parts of critical infrastructure i i think that we need to have a proper strategy and we need to be consistent do you think uh, kind of what are the kind of concrete steps you think they, the government would take or you would take if you're in government to have that strategy with Beijing, the particular things you think you could do now or you would do if you're in government? Okay, so how about, uh, let's start with um, with uh, Xinjiang and, uh, and imports from Xinjiang. So the government say it's, it's up to the responsibility of companies as to whether or not um, product that has, been, that has been made by Uyghurs, and, and there are certainly quite strong allegations the Uyghurs are being essentially used for slave labor. You know, should we be, be buying shirts that are made from cotton from Xinjiang? And what the government says is, well, it's up to individual companies to decide on this. We will leave it to them. Well, I mean, there's certainly something about that. And I'm not saying that, that is, there isn't a role for that. And I think that we should look quite carefully at um, looking at legislation that might give additional responsibility to companies to look carefully at their supply chains and see where, where they get their various product from. But I think we can go further than that. And if you look at what the Americans are now doing, you know, the Americans not only expect their companies to behave in a particular way, but also, you know, the customs um, are, are sitting on the border checking to see what's coming in and where it's come from. I met a company, it was amazing. I really was very cynical when they told me this is what they were gonna tell me about. But they can tell by the, I think it's the DNA of the cotton, where it has come from, it's amazing. Wow. And so they're helping the Americans to say, right, you can't have that shirt because that shirt does come from Xinjiang. Wow. Extraordinary. Anyway, the point is, is we should be looking at this. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we, I mean, why aren't we serious? You know, we could, you know this government's very good at talking about things, but they don't actually do anything. This would be something that we could do now. I think the other thing in the end as well 
is if you look at right after Ch Tiananmen Square, there was a um, in the UN Human Rights Committee, they, the, the Chinese were just like inches away from being condemned by that committee on their human rights record. And they really changed their tactics. And you know, I know you know this now. They went around the world, you know, investing in those very countries that were that were about to be highly critical of China. And then a year later, guess what? <laughs> they had uh, they kind of changed their tune. And what Biden is saying, and I think he's right, is that the only way to redress the balance really is to look again at what investment is being made internationally and to just not leave it to the Chinese and their Belt and Road Initiative. I am surprised, I am shocked and disappointed that there has been so little condemnation from many countries that I would expect um, about what's happening to the Uyghurs. I mean, countries that identify as a Muslim country are saying very little about the Uyghurs. And do you think, um, Emily, that the UK can do more to support um, nations in the region and in around uh, China? Well, yes, I mean, I think that's right, you see. And I think that the point is, is that, well, I think that it also needs to be, it needs to be tied in as well to not just um, investment in those countries, but I think that, that we also need to have a, a human rights thread going through the way in which we use our aid, but also the way in which we trade and in our foreign policy. I think all of these things, you know, should be, should be strung together a bit more than they are. Um, so the work that we do and our priorities and so that we are consistent and so that, you know, so that, so that we're not striking up trade deals with countries and just closing our eyes to particular things that are happening within those countries, but making it clear, you know, a trade deal with us means that you get preferential treatment because you're our friend. But as a friend, we expect you to behave in this way. And if you don't, then we're going to start pulling away from that trade deal. I mean, that's what a human rights clause is, real human rights clauses ought to be. And, and obviously the Beijing regime. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Obviously doesn't like people who engage with, for example, Taiwan. What's your view on that? Well... I mean, Taiwan exists, and I think that they know that uh, that, that that they need to be. Uh, everyone needs to be a little bit more pragmatic about it. In fact, I think. I mean, I'm actually meeting the Taiwanese representative after this podcast, um, uh, Kelly Che. Um, so I'm going to be talking to him about about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and concerns that he has about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I imagine concerns that he has about what future China might have in relation to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Because what's interesting is, you know, when you chat about, I'm like, can I just say this? Because I'm one of the few countries in the, in the people in the country that can actually say this. When we're talking about CPTPP, see, I can just like, it rolls off my tongue. <laughs> Nobody else, can, very few other people can do this. 
other people have to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but I can do CPTPP because I've been doing this job for a year, so I can now say it. But nobody really knows what CPTPP is. I mean, when they did a consultation, only I think they only got 81 responses. And we've moved out of one big trade block, the European Union, and we seem to be about to move back into another one, CPTPP, and nobody really knows what it's all about. I've asked them 237 questions about it. They haven't answered them yet. But, but the point is this. One of the questions is, who are the other members of CPTPP going to be? Because China keeps saying that it wants to join. Uh-huh. And the question is, are they going to join or not? Uh, would we be, are we going to join first? Would they be allowed to join afterwards? Will we be able to boycott them joining? Mm. You know, what the government has said in their, in their documents, which is their scoping document about the discussions they're going to have on CPTPP, is that they are relying on there being an agreement that, um, that, that other countries would not be allowed to join unless they have similar trading rules and a similar economy to those that are already in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So they say that's enough. I say, you haven't thought this through. I say, first of all, I'm really disappointed that your only objection to another country joining, like China, is their economy. When just a few months ago, when there was the threat, as the government saw it, of a, an amendment to the trade bill, which was all about genocide, and uh, particularly about the Uyghurs and the way the Uyghurs were being treated. And if you remember just how kind of bullish the government were being about how appalling the treatment of the Uyghurs was and how appalling human rights and uh, and now their only objection to China, us joining a trade agreement with China is if their economy is different and not on the basis of human rights. I just, you know, I just put that out there just to show how they just have a blind spot when it comes to this sort of stuff. But I also think that even if the Chinese were told that they would need to be changing their economy and changing the way in which they trade, I think that there are certainly quite strong elements within the Chinese government who would see that as a positive external driver for reform. I think that there's, there's, there are people within the government of China who would like their economy to change and would like there to be external pressure that would then kind of help to push and to push those push that change. And so they might well find themselves saying, well, in order to get ourselves prepared to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we need to change our economy this way or that way. And indeed, they may find themselves with friends in the Trans-Pacific Partnership who will say, well, China isn't ready yet, but China's promised that it will get on that path. Let's loosen the rules up a bit and let's, you know, let them be on that. And indeed, you know, countries like, I don't know, Malaysia, South Korea, Thailand, you know, countries who are kind of thinking that they're going to join or they might join the Crown Pacific Partnership, but they're hesitating because they think the rules are too strong, might actually be quite like the idea of, it's a little bit, you know what it reminds me of? It's a bit like some of the countries who are in the European Union who are supposed to have joined the Euro, but who are just taking years and years and years over it. And everything's, everyone's fine about that, you know, but it could be like that with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It could just end up being a much looser organization and you would then get all kinds of countries in there. Anyway, this is a long segue into just, you know, what is the future and what's our future relationship with, with, with China and have they really thought these things through? Because when you ask them questions, they just look at you with dead eyes just don't seem to be thinking this stuff through and you 
need to be, you need to have a proper strategy that you have thought about, that you have discussed with the rest of, of the cabinet and that you're all going in the same direction together, you know? On, on Taiwan, I mean, Beijing has, has got, it got upset at three US senators visiting Taiwan. I mean, do, do you think there's a danger of them trying to bully Western politicians and having no engagement with Taiwan? Well, I mean, the, the, the bottom top of it is, is that there is engagement with Taiwan, you know, and there will continue to be engagement with Taiwan. And I don't believe that the Chinese government is so, um, uh, is so lacking in pragmatism that they really expect to kind of push Taiwan off the island and into the sea. I mean, it's not going to happen, is it? You know, so, you know, an accommodate, accom accommodation needs to be made and, and is made. I don't think that the Chinese at the moment are, are going through a particularly particularly anti-Taiwanese phase. So you mentioned um, the cabinet, um, Emily, and Conservative Homes survey of Tory members um, recently showed that Liz Truss um, was the most popular cabinet minister amongst Tories. Um, I guess, because, you know, she's signed off lots of trade deals. Um, you know, does she deserve any credit there or? Um, somebody said, I'm not gonna say who, but anyway, somebody within the uh, Department for International Trade um, said recently that uh, DIT um, stands for um, the Department for Instagramming Trust. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm not going to pretend that she doesn't have lots of strengths because she does. You know, she's fun um, and lively, um, but, uh, but there are definitely drawbacks. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, um, again, the gossip is, is that, you know, she writes on, she writes on documents. Um, how does it, so too long didn't read with sort of dead eyes on you know if you give her too much stuff in a red box she just won't read the stuff um and she um and I mean I think you know she does a kind of a little bit of a of a sort of um Margaret Thatcher tribute act a wee bit you know and, it, and it's a kind of like you know she's she's harbinger she's she's like she's the she's the holder of the flame these days for the sort of Thatcherites there's something about her mm. and you know when you see her in appear in the chamber you know, the right of the Tory party all pitch up as her kind of cheer, you know, as her, as, her, as her gang. So that's kind of interesting politics going on. And I think that that certainly plays to the membership quite well. And yes, there are lots of photographs of her shaking the hands of people, signing deals around the world. And so giving the impression of a, of a sort of, you know, forward, forward movement initiative. It's interesting how she will take no responsibility for patching the deal that we really need, which is the biggest trade deal, which is the trade deal with the European Union, you know, which have great glaring holes. And you would think that the Secretary of State for International Trade would take some responsibility for ensuring that those, those holes were repaired. And furthermore, that the, any international trade deals that we did were consistent with the biggest trade deal that we have, which is the one with the European Union. But you can't see her for dust. You know, she won't engage on the issue of trade with Europe. Her department does, you know, most of her department actually work across Europe, you know, trying to kind of, you know, facilitate trade. But in terms of political initiatives, which is what we need at the moment, we need to repair this really thin deal. It's like gossamer, you know, mm. the deal that we have at the moment with the European Union, and we do need it to be, to be something which is properly functioning. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it, for a while, it felt like Labour was perhaps quite quiet about Brexit after the deal was signed. Do you think the party needs to sort of be louder about that then? And, and the flaws in the deal, is, as you suggest, do you think that's what the party needs to, to take on uh, going forward? I think these things have their time. 
and I think that you know we've had we've had a lot of things. I think it's becoming more obvious, more manifest what the problems are with the deal, you know. And we kept because it was all kind of you know covered over by 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 COVID and you know by the government continually telling us that it was just teething problems. Well, this far out from the deal, we can now when when businesses come to see me and they do all the time and tell me we've got this problem, we've got this problem. You know, we can start putting together evidence about what the problem is, how it isn't a teething problem, how it needs to be fixed and start challenging the government on what they should do. And furthermore, to be quite honest, you know, do what we are kind of doing quite a lot of these days, which is not just challenging them on what they should do, but actually telling them what we think they should do and hoping that they do do it. You know, that's that's for me. I mean, that's going to be kind of quite a big part of my role. Um, you know, I'm working with Jenny Chapman, who will be the spokesperson and, and will be challenging uh, Frost and the Lords. But, you know, we're 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 having a read across in relation to all trade deals, you know, and not like Liz Truss kind of, you know, I'm like Secretary of State for a donut, you know, like trade, but not Europe. No, no, it's it's all trade we're doing here, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, and that, that makes me think, actually, Emma, it's Rachel Reeves that has, has nibbled at this a bit already, Emily. She said, you know, that uh, fishermen, our farmers and cultural industries are all suffering because of huge gaps in the deal. And it's as if Labour's now finally prepared to mention the war, um, that you're more confident about doing that, that you, you've, you've banked, you've part the issue of Brexit, you've said, look, that's decided, but it's the kind of Brexit deal we've got really matters to lots of businesses. Do you think there is now a, a sort of more of an appetite for you to go out and give your own alternatives on that then without necessarily renegotiating the deal i mean i suppose that's the last thing you want to do is renegotiate it but um well, if you don't renegotiate how, how would a labor government do it differently so i think the first thing is as i said as i said to ned a minute ago i mean i think these things have their own time and so i think that six months out from the from the deal i think that we can now start saying no, really, this when you say this is a teething problem, it obviously isn't. It's more like root canal surgery than teething problems. It's I, I'm not gonna say that, but 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 <laughs> um but certainly, you know, it's obvious that these are problems. And you know, and and we've had within the Shadow Cabinet a number of quite detailed discussions. You know, I've talked to Ed Meliband about it, Lou Hay, um, you know, Jenny Chapman, as I say, Luke Pollard and Rachel, it, it impacts on all of our briefs. But unlike what you seem to see with the cabinet, far too often, you will see one cabinet minister saying one thing, another cabinet minister saying something else. They then have a kind of a, a public fight and we just see who comes out at the end of it. No, no, no. We have been discussing these things together and what the correct approach is. And this is the approach. It's not, you know, we need to, we, the, uh, we're not going to start arguing that we need to get back into the European Union. Because first of all, we won't be able to join on the same terms that we left. And I think, you know, people need to be aware of that. So whether that's, um, you know, there'll be, we'll have to join the Euro, we'll probably have to join Schengen, we wouldn't get our rebate, you know, there are all of these things that it isn't just kind of in as we used to be or out, no. And in any event, you know, we have a deal now, what we need to do is make sure that deal works but it's substandard. So we need to make sure that we patch it. And there's all kinds of things that we need to be, you know, to be working on. Um, and, and the government can't just run away from it. You know, I mean, the number of people, um, the number of departments that I have challenged and asked them if they were in charge of Brexit, you know, 
and they all just go no 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 not us, not us and pass the ball to someone else and then pass the ball to someone else well now we finally have someone um who's the guy who actually negotiated the deal and now we need to start challenging him um you know and making sure that you know the many things that need to be sorted actually are sorted i mean it is ridiculous that we don't have a veterinary agreement you know it's absolutely ridiculous um and you know this is what as i say one of our biggest our biggest trading partner we don't have a veterinary agreement and you know you may remember that uh, they always used to say didn't they that the thing about leaving the european union would be that we would our, our standards would be better than europe we would have the European Union standards as a baseline, but we would build on those and they would be better. And so if that's right, then why can't we have a veterinary agreement? Why can't we have an agreement on the standard of sausages or whatever it is, you know, that's causing all this trouble? Um, ham sandwiches of, of lorry drivers, you know, all of that. I mean, why can't we be just, you know, actually not putting out a barrier to trade, but, but, but negotiating a way of getting around it? Well, Lord Frost let the, let the, let the, cat out of the bag recently because he was asked about that and he said well we can't have a veterinary agreement with the European Union because our negotiations with CPTPP are going really well and it may be that we won't be able to have a veterinary agreement with them that would be consistent with CPTPP. Bingo! They want to lower our standards of our food and our farming and they can't therefore have an agreement with the European Union because the trade deals that they're negotiating are of a lower standard. So um, I think, um, talking about kind of challenging the Conservatives, if we kind of move on to kind of the Labour Party itself, I mean, Labour's victory in Batley and Spen um, kind of gave Keir Starmer a bit of a spring in his step, I'd say. Um, we've actually got a clip here of Starmer in the Commons yesterday, introducing uh, Kim Ledbetter, um as the new MP. Mr Speaker, can I also extend a special welcome to the new member for Batley and Spen. And will members opposite, forgive me, if I just turn round um, to look at the new member for Batley and Spen as she sits there on these benches beneath the plaque to Jo Cox, her sister. And that's a special and emotional moment for all of us on these benches. And I, I think for everybody across this house, it takes incredible courage and bravery uh, to stand um, in that constituency um, and to sit on these benches beneath that plaque. And um, talking to journalists um, on the day of the result, um, Starmer said now the kind of pandemic was hopefully receding, um, the party would have the space to make its argument to the country, just as you were saying there, Emily, about challenging more on the, the kind of outcome of the deal. Um, what do you think the argument that the party needs to make um, between now and maybe conference, what does the party need to be doing in the country to get its message across and, and what is that message so i think you're right i think that we have been really energized by batley and spen um and i think that the labor party is never better actually than when we've got our back against the wall um and we do come back fighting um i think it's important for for Keir to be he's got a program of work that he wants to do um, and he wants to get out and about and not just do a sort of a couple of hours here and a couple of hours there, but, but to spend, you know, two or three days in, in particular places, get to know particular parts, for, for particular parts of the country to get to know him as well, I think is a really important part of this. Um, and, and I think that we just need to be, I personally think, that we just need to be a confident alternative government to this appalling shower that are running the country at the moment. 
and and to speak you know clearly and uh, and confidently uh, with one voice um, and say this won't do this won't do this is not the way to do things we should be doing it this way you know as things come up that's what we should do simple you're talking about kind of the party having its back against the wall do, do you think there's a danger it's it's been like that for too long um and are you it's very concerned that you know the polls aren't moving enough the conservatives are still doing pretty well despite the you know horrendous death, death toll from pandemic you know is there enough time between now and the election to to turn that around i think things are incredibly fluid and volatile just really don't know where we're going to be in a few months time honestly none of us do we've never been through a period like this you know and and frankly a labor leader has never been through a period like this you know even clement attlee had a had a you know short bit of time before the second world war of being leader of the labor party but you know keir starmer became leader of the labor party then the pandemic hit and politics is just like is just just unlike politics has ever been before. And it's been really challenging. I'm not pretend it isn't, because it has been really challenging. And, and the central lie, which is, you know, it's annoying, but it is the reality, is that, you know, we have brilliant scientists who have invented a vaccine. You know, some of the best scientists in the world, fantastic. We have our fabulous NHS, centrally run, well-organized, able to roll out a, a centrally organized plan you know, like that, better than anywhere else in the world. So we get our population vaccinated. The one, frankly, weak link in the chain, in my view, and in the truth, has been our politicians leading this country who have been incapable, as far as I can see, of making decisions in a timely way and, and being able to articulate what it is that it wants the British public to do in a way which is consistent and helps them. Because the British public are quite happy to do the right thing, so long as they're told what the right thing is. And time and time again, we've had this government vacillating from one thing to another, not making a decision in a timely way. I personally think that there have been there has been at least one wave, possibly two waves, that can be you know put at the door of number ten for not making a decision you know fast fast enough. Now, that doesn't change the fact that when I had a vaccine put in my arm, I cried. The guy was so happy, and 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 of course I have always wanted even though I'm a leading figure in the opposition, I have wanted over the last couple of years for the government to succeed. Now that's a weird place to be when you're in opposition. So politics is odd, <laughs> politics is odd, but it's not gonna stay like this because we are hopefully going to move on and we must work out what kind of society we're going to be, what kind of Britain we want as we come out of the pandemic, because we don't want it to be the same. The question is, what are the changes that we want? What have we learned from this pandemic? And are we going to make sure that we don't just talk about it, because this government's very good at talking about it, but actually do some of the right things? That's what an opposition needs to be doing now. Paul, actually, a question for you as well. And um, there's a lot of talk after, well, before Batley, that if it was lost, that Storm would face a leadership challenge. Do you think, given that Storm won, that's gone away now? Um, or is the kind of the left of the party waiting for uh, the next misstep? If there is one well i think it's definitely gone away for the time being um obviously the people who were plotting that leadership challenge were were to think of two things one is you know you you said you you were not jeremy corbyn and therefore you'd see us increase in the polls uh, and that's not happened um or rather it happened and then it it reversed and the second thing was you you promised all these things in your leadership campaign and you've abandoned them in other words you know key bits of you know 
uh, the last manifesto. Um, so on those two things, they're still a bit uneasy, I think, people on the left of the Labour Party. But um, I think Batley and Spen, as Emily said, has re-energised the party. Uh, I think it's definitely bought them some time. Uh, I think what's really interesting is what, how bold he is and how bothered he is about internal party stuff as opposed to external um, uh, messaging. And I think there are certainly people around Keir Starmer who would quite like to see the Electoral College return, for example, to make sure that never again could uh, someone like Jeremy Corbyn run the Labour Party. And the, the jury's out on whether or not he would actually want to go ahead with that fight, because it would be a very bloody fight, you can, you can bet. And I suspect what will happen is they'll wait and see the outcome of the Unite General Secretary election. Um, that could have a big, big difference. So you're not going to you know, you wouldn't win a conference vote unless you get United votes on that, something that enormous. So I think that's going to be quite interesting. I think that'll be part of that whole debate for now. Um, I think, though, the really interesting thing will be this, just what the public think of Keir Starmer over the next few weeks. You know, he said repeatedly, I'm dying to get out there, as Emily just said, I'm dying to meet people. Um, and there's a, like a 35% like a of the public still don't really know who he is. Now, that obviously is very, very unusual for an opposition leader. There's this old fashioned sort of mantra that, you know, it, it, what the public make of you after the first six months in office is, is it set in stone. That's it. It's cast. Uh, and it happened for Duncan Smith, it happened for Haig, you name it. Uh, it happened to Ed Miliband to some extent. And um, but in Starmer's case, it doesn't quite fit that mold because there's a huge chunk of people who still don't know a what they think about him or b what he stands for. And well, I mean, the poor man hasn't had a chance. I mean, come I know. on, you know, I mean, he's literally not had a platform to stand on. I mean, there's just not been one. Or if he does stand on a platform, there's nobody else allowed to be in the room. I mean, it, really. You know, of course, we can't be judged in the same way that leaders of the opposition have been. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing, though, isn't it, Emily? Which is, if things go back to normal, or normal as we knew, the new normal, and he does get out about in the country and he can meet people and he has a normal party conference, then, of course, um, next May's elections will be another big test for, for both the government and the opposition. And I think then it will be interesting to see whether or not the party still cuts him some slack, whether or not, you know, if, if the party can't increase in the polls and the polls aren't everything, but they are a morale boost. And if having met him, if the public then still don't quite know what they make of him, that's the difficulty, I guess. Don't you think? I think that when the public have a choice between a prime minister like Boris Johnson and a decent, honourable man, clever, honourable man with principles like Keir Starmer, it, they will make a clear choice and they will know that they have had enough <laughs> of the likes of Boris Johnson and had enough of this Tory government and we will get a Labour government. And we just have to remember that and remember that the country is crying out for an alternative. We need to stick together. And I personally don't think that we should be picking fights with each other. I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think that we just need clear leadership to be told, you know, that's not acceptable. No, we're doing it this way. You know, we're all sticking together and we need to be, we need to make it clear that we like ourselves and like each other. Um, you know, I don't think that's, and that shouldn't be impossible. Sometimes I think with some people, I'm not naming any names, but sometimes I do wonder, you know, the amount of kind of, venom that some people seem to chuck at one another you know other comrades but they you just think just throw a tenth of that at the tories and you'd be really good politician <laughs> sometimes people are just like there's just sort of terrible bad behavior but 
you know, it's a minority of people, the vast majority of people in the membership and in the senior, senior parts of the Labour Party want us to get into government more than anything else, because we know that that is the only way we can change people's lives for the better. And you reckon, um, I imagine you'd say that um, any attempt to sort of go back to an electoral college is just a backward step? I would say that our priority has to be putting ourselves forward as an alternative government, being clear about who we are and where we're going and what we stand for and what a difference it would make and making it clear to people that they can believe in politics because politics can make a difference to people's lives. I think that at the moment, the cynicism about politics helps to feed and support someone like Boris Johnson, who doesn't deliver anything. I know, and actually you need to have a great cynicism about politics to really think that, you know, you might as well just have a joker as prime minister who at least is entertaining on the 10 o'clock news. No, but if you do think that politics can make a difference to your life, then you need to think seriously about what kind of government you want. And I think that we need to be able to be there and giving hope to people and saying it doesn't have to be like this, there is another way and we can make a real difference to your life. And there was quite a contrast, wasn't there, just finally, between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson when it comes to the football. I mean, Keir Starmer was in his pub, local pub, The Pineapple in Kentish Town, uh, a picture of him with a pint and uh, a football top running on top. And yet we had the Prime Minister last night in a curious sort of sartorial uh, combo where he had a, a shirt and then on top of it, an England shirt, and on top of that, a black jacket. I mean, what do you think of that? What do you think the public would think of that? I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't care. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, I mean, really, people can wear what they like, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> that leads us nicely to the quiz, I suspect. Yeah, get excited, everyone. It's time for the quiz. Um, not everyone's a huge football fan, and Paul, you're probably surprised that this is the topic I chose, but I thought I'd keep in, in, in the country. But luckily, I had Google to make this, so um, and you guys aren't allowed to. Um, so this is the quiz. Um, I'm going to name you a English football Premier League no. team. No way! Oh, that's not bad. And I want you to tell me who their MP is. Oh. Um, it's based on where they. Emily will have based an advantage on, where on this. She knows many. Based on where they're stadiums. I can't remember people's names um, though. That's the trouble. I'm mean, a woman of a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, here we go. Um, Manchester United. Oh, is that you're really born to the sound of the roar of the? North Stratford End. Nope. Stratford End. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, not not that close because it's um it's Kate Green. Ah, Ermston. Yeah, Stratford and Ermston. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one. Um, Brighton and Hove. I picked it because it's my hometown. Um, the Joy Amex Russell Stadium. Ooh. Who's the MP? Peter Kyle. Yeah, Hove. Peter Kyle might be. Peter Kyle. Not Peter Kyle. We'll say that again. Well, then it's Caroline. It's Kyle. It? No, it's not Peter Kyle. And then Lloyd Russell Moyle. Oh, well, hang it's on. Let's see. Those are the MPs of Brighton. Really? Is, is it it's in not. Lewis? Is it's, that it's, a Lewis? Lewis? Yeah. Yeah, it's um. So it's Maria Caulfield, Tory. It's Lewis. Ah, that's a good trick question. Yeah, it's uh, it's opposite the university, which is in a little village called Fama, which isn't actually yeah, in Brighton. Okay. Okay, just two it's more. Painful, so, um, Fulham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Craven Cottage is Fulham's ground. He's the he's the MP. Emily, it's sort of related to to your job in a sense. That's my clue. Oh, Fulham, Fulham MP. Is that Greg Hands? 
Yeah, it's Greg Hans. Mm. Your favourite MP, Emily. <laughs> one of your favourites. Okay, <laughs> one, just one more, the last one. Put everyone bit out of their misery. Um, in honour of Arge, the former host of this podcast, um, Leeds, Ellen Rose, who's the MP for Leeds. Oh God, that is that Hillary Benn. It is, yeah. It's uh, Leeds Central. It's Hillary Benn. What well on Paul? Central. That was just a guess, random guess. <laughs> okay. I have no, no prior knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Emily. Um, we'll end now. Um, We'll end with um, the Prime Minister being repeatedly asked by Labour's Chris Bryant yesterday whether he did or didn't, in fact, sack Matt Hancock. No, no, I'm thinking, of, uh, did you sack Matt Hancock? Well, let me, uh, let me, let me continue with this point. Uh, did you sack Matt Hancock? Uh, let me give you an example uh, of, of the £350 million a week. This was a, um, uh, a figure that related to the, the gross sum that the UK gave to the EU budget. It was uh, a subject of lively controversy during the referendum campaign five years ago, as you remember. Uh, actually, it, it turned out, to, if anything, uh, Sir Bernard to be a, a slight underestimate. And by uh, this year, uh, the, the gross figure Did would have been considerably Matt higher. Did Sorry, if I'm, on, 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 on your question about Mr Hancock, the former health secretary, let me just go back to what I said uh, many, many times, and uh, I think I said on the floor of the House of Commons, uh, which was that uh, we read about, and I think you read about, we all read about the story concerning Mr. Hancock and uh, and and uh, CCTV and so forth on, I think, the Friday, and we had a new health secretary on the Saturday. And considering that we are in the middle of a global pandemic, and it's quite a thing to move your health secretary. Uh, Mr. Bryant, I think that was quite fast going, if I may say so. And that's all I have to say on that matter. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.